On April 9th, 1865, the Civil War ended when Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered his army at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, ending the four-year war between the states. Five days later, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. In that moment, people were yearning for peace and security. It was a disunified country that was grasping for hope amidst deep despair, ravaged by the wrath of war and human hearts that were hardened by hatred, even in their own homeland. But it's not unlike today. We live in a time of worldwide pandemic fears and social and political unrest, fractured relationships, hearts chasing idols, and rampant acceptance of lies, and much disunity. 1865 was also the year that Philip Brooks was inspired to write the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The song of quiet peace and rest, the kind of rest that people were yearning for in that moment, song of hope restored and recalling hundreds, even thousands of years, the promise of a Savior to be born. Phillips Brooks, he lived from 1835 to 1893. He pastored the Church of the Trinity in Philadelphia, and he was in Bethlehem on Christmas of 1865. He attended the Church of the Nativity on Christmas Eve. That journey that he took inspired him to write the song, but he didn't complete it until 1868, and he asked his church organist to write a tune to it so it could be sung at church on December 27th, 1868. And I love this part of the story. The organist, Louis H. Redner, he was asked to write this tune with hardly any lead time, and here's what he said about it. He said, Mr. Brooks came to me on Friday. Redner, have you ground out that music yet to O Little Town of Bethlehem? I replied, no, but you'll have it by Sunday. He said, Saturday night, I woke up in the middle of the night. I jotted down a tune, and on Sunday before church, I filled in the harmony. This is how life goes. The words are beautiful. The first stanza goes like this. You, you know it. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Jesus was born. The third stanza says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. That was truth sung by believers at the end of the Civil War. It was, it was truth they needed to sing. They clung to it in the wake of the Civil War, and it's, it's truth that we can cling to today in the midst of a lot of uncivil unrest in our time and in our hearts. In the midst of the hurry of your life, the busyness, uh, wartime strife even, we, we get to remember Jesus Christ. Today, that's what we're doing. We're remembering Jesus Christ, not just born, but he lived and then he died in our place and he, he was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day and he's coming back. That gives shape to everything. 
It can give shape to your life today. Where you see life in perspective that what God will do future helps you live today. It'll help you live tomorrow morning. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-5 through 5, that tells us of the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It will be a time of wrath and doom for some people while others will enjoy peace and security. The idea of this passage is that believers in Jesus will experience eternal rest in Christ, not the wrath and doom of the day of the Lord. And the context we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians, where the beloved in Christ become more and more beloved to one another as they anticipate the return of Christ, how those who are chosen by God are changed by the gospel and then connected in loving relationships such that you, you say, I don't want to just give the gospel but my very life because the people in the church are very dear to me. And then you become committed to serving God with everything you have, serving his purposes in this generation as we wait for Christ to return. We keep turning from idols and to serve the living God. Last week, we, we looked at that classic passage at the end of chapter 4 in verses 13 to 18 where we saw the truth that glorious hope anchors our souls, our glorious hope of Christ coming for his church. And the question that was really being asked and then answered with that passage is, what will happen to believers who die before Jesus comes back for his church? That's what we saw in this passage. What will happen? The dead in Christ will be raised in Christ. Their bodies will be reunited with their souls. And what will not happen? Living Christians at that moment will not precede dead Christians when Christians are raised. We saw what it would look like, what it would be like. It would be loud and public and instantaneous and imminent any moment. This is our hope in Christ. And What were we to do with it? It says that we were to encourage one another with these words, comfort each other with these words. Give each other comfort. Comforted by the truth that believers who die before the rapture will not miss the rapture. There will be a reunion. There will be a rescue. The church will be evacuated. There will be a resurrection. It will lead us to rejoice in Christ right now. This glorious hope is our anchor as we await his return. And then the very next verses comes a a slight shift in thought. Still connected to what happens right before, and and Paul is still soothing their fears. Some of the fears you might even have. But he's soothing the fears about Christians who die before Christ comes for his church. And now he begins to speak of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now they were previously unaware of the rapture and the details of that But they knew about the day of the Lord. They knew of this day of coming wrath. But here's what what Paul is trying to do and why this is here for us. There was another concern that had popped up into their minds. That Jesus not returning created a a different concern in their minds. And and, and it's this. They were in troubling times. They were following Jesus, and they were experiencing a great conflict of suffering and and persecution and tribulation in in those moments, and the troubling times made them wonder. The delay of Christ's return, coupled with intense suffering, led them to think, maybe we're in the midst of the day of the Lord now. You think about your life right now and how bad it can get. The day of the Lord will be far, far worse. This passage tells us 
First, that imminent wrath will come upon unbelievers. And secondly, that eternal rest will be enjoyed by the redeemed, by the elect, by believers. This is what we'll see as we go through this passage. The first three verses tell us that imminent wrath will come upon unbelievers at any moment. Verse 1, he says, now concerning the times and the seasons. The times indicates a duration of time. The seasons, the kind of events that happen. And, and he said, brothers, brothers and sisters, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you about this. The subject is now changing from the blessings of the rapture, which they didn't completely know about, to the wrathful judgment that will happen on unbelievers. He speaks of times and seasons or dates. He's using two well-known words that meant the measurement of time and the character of time. He's describing the end times in two ways. Measures elapsed time and then the particular time when predictions will be fulfilled and then the character or the quality of time, the signs that go along with it. Now, a lot of people expected then, as we should be expecting now, that the Lord will return in our lifetime. And so they were getting confused, they were getting grieved when fellow believers died before his coming, and Paul had taught them what they didn't know about the rapture. But they knew what they were supposed to know about the judgment. It's been said that preaching is a ministry of reminding where we get reminded over and over again of truth that we know, but we maybe tend to forget or get confused about. Even when Jesus was ascending to the Father after the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, they come to him and they say, is this the time now that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he's like, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. No, you go be my witnesses. You get busy with gospel ministry. Let me take care of the timing of everything. So in verse 2, he says, for you yourselves are fully aware. That means they accurately and precisely knew about the day of the Lord. He uses this phrase, the day of the Lord. It's, it's, it's loaded with meaning. You see it all through the Bible. And he says, the day of the Lord, you know this, it's going to come like a thief in the night without warning. You don't get a you know, preview call. By the way, make sure that you're not home because I'm going to rob you. you know, that, that doesn't happen. It's an unexpected thing. And, and, and he says, the thief, the, the, the day of the Lord would be like a thief in the night. And they knew about it. They knew very well about this, this day of the Lord. I asked someone this week, I said, do you know what happens on the day of the Lord? And they're like, well, and they're kind of piecing things together. And that's kind of how most of us are most of the time. And this is going to help us understand. It's going to help us live tomorrow morning in light of the day of the Lord. You need this. You need this because you need peace and security. Right now, they knew very well about the day of the Lord. And, and the word that is, a, is a word of precision that they, they, they were fully aware. Their previous learning had given them definite, specific information, even the, what Jesus had said in the Gospels. And it's going to come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly and without warning, so the day of the Lord will come. Now the focus on the day of the Lord here. It's a theme that's given a lot of biblical airplay, okay? And it's the ultimate overthrow of God's enemies that will happen. 
The day of the Lord. 19 times in the Old Testament, the exact phrase, the day of the Lord, is, is used. But multiple, multiple, lots and lots of times it's referred to. Four times in the New Testament, in Acts and in 2 Peter and in 2 Thessalonians and here in this passage. The Old Testament prophets, they used the term, the day of the Lord, to describe the impending judgments or end times divine judgments on evildoers. Six times it's referred to as the day of doom. Four times the day of vengeance. The New Testament calls it the day of wrath, the day of visitation. The day, it's even said in, in, in Revelation, the, the great day of God Almighty. And it's about terrifying judgments that are going to come upon unbelievers due to the overwhelming sinfulness of the world. Isaiah spoke of it. Isaiah 13, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And these kind of words are spoken over and over again in the Old Testament. Some of you are going to go away today and say, Pastor Mike, he was preaching fire and brimstone. I'm actually just reading the Bible. In Ezekiel and Joel and Amos and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Malachi, these kinds of words are found. In Jeremiah 23, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. He is always good, he is always kind, he is always loving, he is always patient, he is always merciful, and he is wrathful. In Matthew 24, he says, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Move on to verse 3, and it says, while people are saying, they're going to be saying this kind of thing, there is peace and security, it's all good, I'm doing great. Oh, the future looks awesome. There's, there's a bond for me. There's a secure position in life. And he says, suddenly destruction will come upon them. Misfortune, ruin, disaster will come upon them, will visit them, will, will come near to them. Suddenly, literally it reads, suddenly destruction as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. They will be saying peace and safety. This is just like the false prophets in the Old Testament who fraudulently forecast the bright future for unbelievers in spite of the imminence of God's judgment in the days before the day of the Lord's destruction. And he says this is going to come like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. I remember when our firstborn, Alexandra, was born in almost 30 years ago now. And I think, I don't know what time it was, 3.30 or 4 in the morning. I don't remember what time it was. And Angela says, well, my water just broke. I'm in labor. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll see you in the morning. And we'll go to the hospital. And she's like, you didn't listen in the class we took. I'm like, yeah, we're going to be good. We'll go in a while. And she's like, no, we've got to go now. Now. This is what happens. Labor pains. This is what God's using as this, as this graphic, vivid picture. This is what's going to happen. But where the labor pains are also accompanied with joy. Here, there's a very sobering result. It's a sudden destruction, and there's unrest, and they're unprotected. John Stott put it this way, the thief gives no warning, and labor pains give no escape. 
the vivid picture of surprise and destruction and darkness and pain and, and no escape for those who choose to, to reject Christ, who choose to ignore Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Luke 17 says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Just like in Noah's time. Unbelievers parading around saying, we're in safety, we're in security, there's no flood coming, you're crazy. Because unbelievers have this tendency, and I did it before I was a believer, we have this tendency to pride themselves in their secure life. I'm good. In fact, most, most of the time I did this before I came to know Christ, I thought, well, you know, I'm better than most people, I'm not as bad as most people, and you always do that comparison in your heart, and usually always wrong. In fact, they're going to be saying peace and safety. Peace, I've got inner peace. And I've got safety. I've got freedom from outside interference. I'm good. I'm the captain of my soul. That's what people are going to be saying. And, and destruction, like, hey, Californians, like an earthquake? Like an earthquake? Oh, you, you, you can't predict, it just happens? It will come suddenly, utter and hopeless ruin, the loss of everything worthwhile, and they won't be totally annihilated. They'll be assigned to wrath, and they will, they will be denied the privileges of any kind of salvation. And the tribulation is going to come suddenly and be worldwide and be impossible for non-Christians to escape. Like, you know, it's interesting, we've been living in a pandemic moment for like two years. And you go, oh, it's so bad, and you know, and, and you might say, well, I, I see some similarities. Maybe we're in the middle of the tribulation. Oh, no. These are just, these are just little, little uh, hiccups, little tremors before the big one comes. It's going to be much worse. And let's just say, I, I, I don't know all of you. I don't know who's watching online. I don't know the hearts of every one of you and where exactly you are. But let's just say that today you're an unbeliever and you say, I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe this is going to happen. And, and, and I don't think my sins are that bad. And, and especially compared to other people. And, and here's what you need to know. This is not the way God judges. Oh yeah, you're not as bad as, you know, your next door neighbor. And you're pretty good. That's not, no, that's not how God does the math. Our sins are heinous. They are prideful. They're rejecting of God's sovereign rule. And all of us are under the just wrath of God unless and until God opens our heart to believe the gospel of his grace in Christ. And either your sins are on Christ by faith or they are on you by foolish pride. And, and if you're not a believer today, I would say in the, in the most calm and loving way I could, this is your warning. This is, this is your warning. You might have had many of them. I want you to go to Revelation 20 with me. I'm going to read just verses 11 to 15. You remember there was a movie, I don't even know how long ago it was, uh, The Truman Show? 
And it was about this guy that, that didn't know it, but his whole life was a reality TV show. Everyone around the world would watch this guy, and everything he did was like on camera. Well, God's version of the Truman Show is more vivid than any you know, manufactured reality show could be. Now, I want you to, to hear these words. Revelation 20, beginning verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, Hades and death, gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now you could say, oh, but that timing is going to be da-da-da-da-da. Stop. He says, read the Bible. And I just want to point out this. There are two different sets of books there is the book and there is the books, singular and plural. And whatever in those books is the basis for your salvation or damnation. And it is very clear. In God's books is a complete record of all human sin. Every evil deed, every impure thought, every bad motive, every secret act. Not secret to God. That nothing you do escapes the attention of the all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, triune God. And at the judgment, the contents of the books will give the evidence for a just verdict of judgment. And to go free, to be acquitted, your name must be in the book of life. The only way that your name can get in the, that book is by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Whoever's names are not in the book will be judged by what's in the books. Page after page after page. Those are long books. And you're foolish to think, well, God is not keeping a detailed record of my life. This, this tells us he is. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, it refers to the person who blesses himself in his own heart and says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And this will lead to a sweeping away. Psalm 10 says, the fool says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Hebrews 2 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 4 says, no creature is hidden from his sight. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 12 says, don't refuse him who is speaking. How will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? It is foolish to think that God will not hold you accountable. Psalm 10 says, why do the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you won't call me to account? Acts 17 tells us, God has set a day capital D, when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if, if you're not a believer today, you need to flee for refuge to Jesus from the wrath to come. In Luke 3, a great passage of Scripture that where it shows, it says the word of, the, of God came to John the Baptist. Now, we know John the Baptist, the, the son of Zechariah, who was, as an unborn child, was the first to rejoice at Jesus' birth. He leapt in Elizabeth's womb. He was the first to rejoice the first Christmas. And here is John the Baptist, all grown up, out in the wilderness. And he goes out into all the region of Jordan, and he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here is what he said to the crowds who came out to him. You brood of vipers. You know, what an invitation. <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he followed it up with this. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't fool yourselves. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hebrews 6 speaks of Christians and says, We who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor, sure and steadfast, an anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the holiest place in the secret councils of the triune God where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, our high priest forever. If you're a believer today, knowing that there is imminent wrath that will come upon unbelievers, you must never think, well, they're going to get what they deserve because that means you don't understand the gospel. You should never think that. You should think, I need to get a bigger boat to rescue all the perishing and preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ to every person I come in contact with. Because imminent wrath will come upon unbelievers and we don't know the day or the hour. It can happen in a moment. It will happen in a moment. And the second point would never lead us to pride, but only to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him. And the second point in this passage is that eternal rest will be enjoyed by the redeemed, the elect, the believers. In contrast to unbelieving Christ rejectors, the believers in Thessalonica are now affectionately called brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters. I want you to notice in verse 4, Paul dramatically shifts from third-person plural pronoun that he used three times in verse 3 to the second-person plural, you brethren, you are not, verse 4, you are not in darkness, you are not in a place of danger spiritually, brethren, for that day to surprise you. Now, that doesn't mean like, you know, when you get a surprise birthday party, you're like, ooh, surprise, you're like, ah, oh, that's nice. Even like when I study at home, sometimes I, I get really deep into it and uh, I get startled easily. And so if someone walks into the room I'm studying and they say something, I'm like, why are you trying to hurt me? You know, you're trying to attack me. And they're like, we're just calling your name, tell you it's time for dinner. You know, uh, it's not that kind of surprise. When he says that this day would surprise you, 
Surprise there means to seize with violent intent, hostile intent. He says, you're not going to be surprised by that day like, like a thief. He's reassuring Christians of something. If you're a believer today, if you're trusting your soul upon Christ because of his work on the cross, here's what you need to know. This is so good. You are in a different realm from the rest of the world. And you will not be participants in the day of the Lord. Your position in Christ guarantees you deliverance. The church will be raptured before the day of the Lord. Believers will not be present to experience the terror and destruction of the day of the Lord. Darkness is the the realm of wickedness and evil and ignorance. Unbelievers are even called in Scripture uh, of being in darkness, in the night, as verse 2 put it, engulfed in mental and moral and spiritual darkness because of sin and unbelief. Unbelievers are called children of Satan. I I wouldn't suggest that you go around calling your friends that, okay? But the description is sobering, and there's a reason. It's because it's true. Oh, but they're so nice, and they're so kind, and they're, they're even a better citizen than me. That's not the point. They're called children of Satan, and who, Satan, who is called the power of darkness. And, and, and what this passage is telling us is the day of the Lord is going to overtake them suddenly with deadly results. That's the reason to have a passion for, for souls and for people to hear the gospel of how God loves so much that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, believing in Jesus removes you from the realm of darkness. Jesus said this in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if you're a believer today, you will not experience the wrath of God, not due to any, you know, moral superiority on your part. If you're thinking that, you're not understanding the gospel. The idea is you're not going to experience the wrath of God, not due to moral superiority because you're better than people, but because you are different in nature because Jesus delivered you from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13, and transferred you into his kingdom. Now, how Peter puts it is we're a chosen race, a people for God's own possession, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What God does. He says, First Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, you weren't a people before. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So verse 5 says, you are all children, or literally sons, sons and daughters of light. You belong to a different realm. You're children of the day. You're sons and daughters of the day. And he says, we are not, we are not of the night or of the darkness. We're sons of light. We're we're characterized by light. We have Christ. This is talking about the sphere that something belongs, that believers are in the sphere of being kept by Christ. Sons of light. It's a Hebrew expression that characterizes believers as children of God. 
Their heavenly Father is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Christians do not dwell in darkness. Now we do dark deeds. We do evil deeds at times. We need to confess our sins and God's kindness leads us to repent of our sins when we know Christ. But Christians don't dwell in darkness. And, and the day, by the way, when it says children of the day in, in verse Five, it's not referring to the day of the Lord. It's just metaphorical for spiritual light. That believers live in a completely different sphere of life than those who will be experiencing the day of the Lord. In John 12, it says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. In Acts 26, it says that God will open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they would receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. If you're not a Christian today, that's what you need. Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. In Ephesians 5, it tells believers, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk or live as children of light. The only way to escape the judgment of the day of the Lord is to avoid it by having the salvation that only Jesus gives. We will see next week that God did not appoint us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking to believers who need to understand these things so we can live tomorrow morning with hope and actually with a perspective that shapes today because we know what's going to happen in the future. You need to understand end times events. And I love this. This thought came to me this week that the Thessalonians were still learning about this. So if you don't feel like you have the best grasp of all this, praise God. Very similar to the Thessalonians. They were still learning back then. We are still learning now. And what happens is they would bring, they brought their pre-understanding of Scripture, their, their predisposed way of seeing scripture and it had to be reformulated by the spirit of god through the scriptures it's the same thing we do we bring a pre-understanding to the scriptures and a predisposed way of thinking or seeing it and it needs to be reformulated by the scriptures like submit your convictions to god and let him shape your thinking as you are shaped by the word of god because these five verses are describing the day of the Lord's wrath. And by the way, I, I'm going to give, I'm going to say a few more things, and I'm just going to post my sermon notes online so you can see them, and you can look up all the references later. But look, there, there's a time of trial that is at the, on the outset of the earthly day of the Lord, and it won't be brief. It'll be comparable to labor that's maybe long before giving birth. But the thing you need to know is the earthly wrath that will happen on the day of the Lord will not touch those in Christ. We are going to meet Christ in the air before God deals with those on earth. So the rapture and the day of the Lord are both spoken of here as imminent. Salvation for those who are in Christ coincides with the coming of wrath for the rest. The rapture is coinciding with the beginning of the day of the Lord, which is why both can be spoken of as imminent any moment possibilities, and why he talks about them back to back, like one after the other. Jesus even includes the tribulation within the day of the Lord by using day of the Lord terminology to describe the, tribu the great tribulation. 
But what you need to know is unexpectedness will mark the tribulation's beginning. Now, I've been leaning on someone. I'm going to give you a long quote right now. Don't think you have to write it down. It'll be posted online. But there's a guy named Michael Vlock that I'm leaning on heavily here, and he, he really says it pretty succinctly, but it's a long quote. So, you know, strap in. Here we go. Here's what he says. Just as the first coming of Jesus was not just a one-day event, so too the second coming of Jesus will be complex and involve more than just one day. The entire day of the Lord, seven years, is the coming of Jesus. Jesus opens the first seal, Revelation 6.1, which launches the whole chain of the day of the Lord events, seals, trumpets, bowls, that culminates, culminates in Jesus' return to earth, Revelation 19, and subsequent earthly kingdom, Revelation 20. Thus, the opening of the first seal by Jesus launches the day of the Lord and the take back of planet Earth. Also, since the purpose of the rapture is an evacuation of the church from experiencing the day of the Lord, the rapture itself also is part of Jesus' second coming. And he says the second coming of Jesus involves, one, the rapture, two, the seven-year day day of the Lord, tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, third, the return of Jesus to Earth, and fourth, millennial kingdom. He also goes on to say this, The emphasis in Scripture is on the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. While the kingdom can rightly be included with the day of the Lord in Joel 3, the heavy emphasis is on the judgment phase that culminates in the return of Jesus to earth. Now he says one more thing. This will all get posted up, but one more thing he says. It's very important. You're going to like it. He says Isaiah 24 and 25, Zechariah 14, Matthew 24 and 25 present a similar sequence Where there is tribulation on earth, then the Messiah comes to the earth, then there is the kingdom of the Messiah on earth. So it's tribulation, then the Lord's return, then kingdom. Exactly, he says, what we see in Revelation. A time of terrible tribulation on earth, Revelation 6 to 18. Then Messiah comes to earth, Revelation 19. Then a kingdom of the Messiah on earth, Revelation 20. And he closes with this. The pattern in Revelation is the same as what is revealed in other prophetic passages. Not hard at all. I love that part. Not hard at all. Jesus will remove his church prior to the day of the Lord. Christians have a different destiny. Contrasting those who walk in the day, those who walk in the night. Unbelievers are under wrath. Believers will be rescued. Now, the timing of the rapture gets debated a lot. But one thing that is not up for debate is Jesus is coming again. Jesus is returning, and he can appear at any moment with swift judgment, which should make us think this, and this is why this is important for tomorrow morning, and really the rest of today, too. That means you you want to live in a way that pleases God. You want to live in a a God-pleasing way, live faithfully, confident in God, who knows the end from the beginning. That is what Paul is then going to continue to do, just exhort them, just live in a godly way, love the Lord, do what you're called to do on a daily basis. Don't, don't be distracted by probing all the issues of timing. I would put it this way, don't ignore the info you have to ask for info you do not need. John MacArthur put it this way, being spiritually prepared for the return of Christ does not involve date setting, clock watching, or sign seeking. God has chosen not to reveal a specific time of the end time events so that believers will live in constant anticipation. That we, you and I, are to live in constant anticipation of the return of Christ. Like you have the info, now you need prep work. Just keep on doing what God has called you to do. Don't have some unhealthy curiosity about date and times. And don't leave your Bible closed. 
you, they needed understanding of the day of the Lord, and so do we, and it's going to come like a thief, and that's never joyful or announced. There's no call ahead to confirm crime. Here will be the most blessed thing that God has promised, the day that will surprise many, but not believers. Because if you're a believer, you're beloved, and you have peace and security in Christ. Peace and security is yours in Christ if you're a Christian. So you can be reassured. You're in a different realm from the rest of the world and you will not be participants in the day of the Lord and your position in Christ guarantees you deliverance. Keep remembering this as you even look in the context. Like, don't be confused. Keep the context of this passage in mind. They were confused about present circumstances and the future state. Easy for us to be the same way. They were suffering greatly on account of their new faith. They believed Jesus would return and deliver them from suffering. So the delay of his return, coupled with intense suffering, led them to think, maybe we're in the midst of the day of the Lord. And what they're getting is comfort from God. And God doesn't give all the specifics. He helps them live in confidence in light of coming events. Think with me for a moment. We've got a tree up here. You know, some of you still wearing Christmassy stuff and... Think about the build-up to Christmas, and then the letdown. This is the day after Christmas. You know, some of you are like, yeah, that gift I got, eh, didn't do it for me, right? <laughs> Think about the build-up to Christmas, and, and the letdown. Oh, and the, the cleanup. <laughs> you got to put away the decorations. Some of you like that, and you're weird, okay? Uh, oh, and you got to get ready for New Year, and get, a, you know, get the calendar before the end of the year. Hopefully it arrives, you know, and... Here's what I want you to do with me. Just pause. And don't think about any of that stuff. All those decorations you have to put away. All the wrapping paper that's, you know, stuffed in the trash. And all the stuff you ate that you shouldn't have. Just think with me for a moment. About the great love that God has for you in Christ and the gospel. Such that he would save your soul and assure you of eternal life, and assure you of an evacuation of his timing, the magnificent rescue that will take place. And you think about all the bad things in life that you've experienced, or that you might experience, they will be nothing compared to the day of the Lord that unbelievers will experience. When it's interesting for a Christian, when the future is not in doubt, you can live today and enjoy it. When your future's not in doubt, you can enjoy today. It's kind of like if you watched, uh, you wanted to watch a football game, and you missed it, so you recorded it. But before you watch the game, you, you see the score somewhere, or someone tells you. Well, if you're a real fan, you watch that game because you are really glad your team won. And when they're going through a rough patch, you remember, hey, they won this game. It's just a rough patch in the middle. You know, I, can, I can watch Kobe scoring 81 points like a lot. I have, actually. And, and like when he gets to the fourth quarter, like with, a, with, like, with like eight minutes left, you're like, how is he going to get to 81? But you know he does, and it's just sweet watching him do it again. I can watch USC losing to Texas in the national championship game over and over again, and I have that, that, that moment when Vince Young scored this improbable touchdown, and I love it. I know the end, but it's just so sweet to see it. 
you know the end. Believers, you know the end. You can enjoy right now. The future's not in doubt. There's a guarantee. It's praise God. There's a guarantee that believers will participate in a spiritual realm entirely different from that of unbelievers. Wow. God is so good. There is imminent wrath that will come upon unbelievers, but there is eternal rest that will be enjoyed by the redeemed, and I will just say this to you. Let me ask you the question. Is your soul at rest in Christ? Or is your soul weary and troubled? I love this. I got this little book by Samuel Rutherford. It's called The Loveliness of Christ. And there's this little quote. I love it. I went to bed thinking of this last night. He says, there are many heads lying in Christ's bosom, but there is room for yours among the rest. There is room for you. Don't run from God in despair. Just cast your weary soul on Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. His love for you is measureless. The good news is that Jesus died in your place on the cross for your sins. He substituted himself for you. So repent, turn from your sins, and believe, trust in Christ. You will not perish in the judgment to come, but you will have eternal life. And believer, the same mercy and grace, that same mercy and grace enables you to continue on as the Lord gives you perseverance. So don't give up. If, if you're a Christian that wants to give up, Remember this, we are not, Hebrews 10, 39, we are not among those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith for the safekeeping of the soul. This passage of scripture today is not meant to frighten you, it's meant to comfort you. It's meant to free you to live proclaiming the gospel. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. Believers have peace and security. And, and your peace and security must hit every part of your life. Let's make it intensely practical, shall we? It must hit your relationships. 2 Peter 3.14, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Not just with God, like I have peace with God, but with your family and with your family in Christ and with your neighbors. It hits where we live. The, the practical outwork, outworking and outgrowth of hope in Christ is peaceful living pleasing God and blessing others. I love what D.A. Carson said. He said, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. And what binds us together is not common education, race, income levels, politics, nationality, accents, and jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. Because they've all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. Because that's how the world's going to know that we belong to Christ. Sometimes I'm hiking in the late afternoon, up in Santiago Oaks, and around a bend, and I can see the ocean all the way, and it's about sunset. And we live in Southern California, so that sunset is beautiful, but it's mixed with smog or fog or whatever particles are in the air. And I think 
if our peace and security in Christ is going to hit every area of our life, we need to acknowledge this. God uses fog and smog and smoke and dirt as filters through which the sun cuts and creates a startlingly beautiful sunset, a scene. In the body of Christ, in the church, in the local church, here it's filled with Christians in contrast, our selfish, sinful desires, fighting with our desire to be kind and bless others, and knowing that God is going to use our issues and our selfless love to create a reflection of his glory and his love, which is startling in its otherworldly beauty. And God will do this, because it's the beauty of the holy God who saves the people for himself. Praise God. Praise God that he is changing us. Lord, thank you for the truths that are found in your word today that we are, are in this passage that of such destruction and such, such judgment and wrath, but thank you for the peace and security that you give every believer that, that we are safe in Christ, that we are secure in you. And all we can say in response is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom you are pleased. Lord, may our hearts, may our homes, may this church be filled with love for you every day. And may our glorious hope in Christ be the anchor for our souls as we celebrate Christ's birth and death and resurrection and await his return. Let me pray in Christ's name. Amen.